If you're comfortably able, if you'd remain standing to honor God's word, comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I'll be reading just verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to worship this morning and a warm welcome to those who are participating online. We're certainly glad that you are with us. Today, uh, this Sunday is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and we know and hope and pray that this will be a formative and special time in the life of our congregation. We, we do have some things that we are doing that will help enhance our discipleship and our formation as we contemplate the cross this year. A couple of things I do want to let you know of. Every Wednesday night during um, the month of March, every Wednesday night in March, we're going to gather right here in our sanctuary for sacred music, for communion, for teaching. Um, these, are, these have always been wonderful times. They will be streamed online, and we also will be present here uh, in, in the sanctuary. Also, you might have saw on your way in, this is a tradition in our church. We, we have these nails that we carry in our pockets uh, during the season of Lent, and they are, remind us of the cross, and they remind us of Christ's sacrifice um, if you want to pick one of these up on the way out, you can do that and carry it with you and then come back on Monday, Thursday or Good Friday and we'll, we'll put all of these on the, at the foot of the cross. And then also during this season, we, um, uh, this sermon series, we have a podcast. Pastors Kirk and Bruce do a masterful job, special podcast. Um, you can find it on iTunes. It's wonderful. It's called The Full Dig. You want to be a part of that. During the next few weeks during Lent, I'm going to be preaching on Jesus' discourse in the upper room found in John's Gospel. These uh, short cha- these chapters at near the end of his, pa- right before his passion. During this time, Jesus spoke with his close friends words of comfort and words of care. He spoke about the future, about what was to transpire in and through these conversations. He, he makes them several promises. And each week I want us to look at these promises that are given to us as well. Today we're going to be looking at the promise that I just read, that we, will, we are promised a dwelling place and that we will be with him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable now in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are, as you know, quite familiar with promises. We hear them, we make them all the time. Some are little promises. I promise to clean my room. Some are big promises, like the one said right here um, today. We're going to ordain uh, leaders for our church, and they're going to be making a promise and a vow in front of the church and in front of God. Politicians make promises. Have you noticed this? We get a little cynical about promises, do we not? 
There was a recent study in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and researchers found that you're more likely to make a promise to the people that you love. Makes a little bit of sense. That's because we're driven by affection to make lavish promises in the first place. Um, we mean it at the time. We, we absolutely mean it. But lavish promises are the least likely ones to be kept. We can get very cynical when you hear the word promise. Can we not? We've all been hurt. So we're going to have to do some work to understand that when Jesus makes promises, we need to remember that they are true and that they are kept. They are binding. They are faithful. They are driven by love and they're driven by sacrifice. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I think it's particularly important when we consider these verses in front of us today. Sometimes Bible chapters and Bible verses, the actual numbers, are problematic. As you know, when the Bible was written, there were, it was hundreds of years later before the, even the idea of numbered verses or numbered chapters when they were inserted. Today's text is a very good example. In the verses before ours, Jesus is talking in chapter 13 at the end, Jesus is talking about two things. One, he keeps talking about his impending death. These are his close followers. They've left, things. They've left family and home. And he, Jesus keeps talking about how he's going to be lifted up and his death is, is soon approaching. Can you imagine how jarring this must have been? How, what in the world is he talking about? Who talks like this? How does he know? But he kept bringing this up. And then he also, right before our passage, says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Wow. He's going to die. The disciples are going to abandon him. How's that for nice little chatter? This is heavy, heavy stuff. Talks about Jesus' death, human frailty. That's the context to where we hear these very familiar verses. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, many dwelling places. I have probably preached on these verses more in my pastoral career than any other verses in the Bible. Because at almost every memorial service or funeral, these verses are read. I was at a, attended a memorial service yesterday, and these verses were read, and for good reason, because they are very, very comforting. But we need to understand the context of what's going on, what Jesus is actually communicating. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also you should believe in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, he says. This is a promise to his disciples. It's a promise to us. In the Old English in King James's day, mansion meant just a modest dwelling. So sometimes we, we miss that. A better translation says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. Many rooms. That's the promise. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. You know, when I, when I read these verses, and they're very familiar to me, I read them a lot, and I've preached on them. I've thought about them when I sit with family members who are grieving a loss of a loved one. And this promise is so comforting. But I tend, I don't know about you, but I tend to focus, all I really hear is the many rooms part. I mean, because I like that. I mean, when Jesus says, hey, there's a room for you, 
That's what I hear, that after I die, Jesus has promised me a room, a room, my room, my room, the one for me. And since Jesus is good and kind, I imagine the kind of building that he is going to undertake to build my room, right? What will my room look like? I'd like a glorious man cave, right? That's what I would like. I'd like a really big screen TV and a comfortable chair. This is going to be my room that he's going to build. There are going to be so many cool C.S. Lewis books, original issued hardbound leather, mahogany bookcases. Just outside the room, there's going to be a putting green out back. Heaven. This is sometimes the way I, I hear and read these verses. What's in it for me? What am I getting out of this? I'm so often tempted to read and hear the scriptures that way. But the more I think about it, I'm not sure I'm grasping what Jesus is saying. Again, context. And I'm tempted to miss the thrust of what he's trying to communicate to me with this promise. And I'm struck with his phrase, I'm going to prepare this place for you. This leads me to a lot of questions. Why does Jesus need to prepare the room? I mean, he created the world, created everything. Can he just say it? And where does he have to go to do this? Why does he have to go? Why does he have to prepare? He, he says this twice. In these three verses, I'm going to prepare. Why? When I was in seminary, Julie and I were on the East Coast in Princeton, New Jersey. And we were living in student housing, these very modest apartments that we lived in with all the other students. And our families, both of our families lived on the West Coast. Here we were on the East Coast. We were young and we were expecting our first. Julie was pregnant and then... It was getting really close. But, you know, as, as you might have, with your first, we went through all the Lamaze classes. We went through all the things. We read all the books. But we were apart from family. We'd never done this before. Um, this was all brand new. So I'm obviously quite nervous about the whole thing and what would happen and how are we going to get to the hospital and when the day comes. And, I mean, so many questions. And then that morning came. I was there in our little apartment and, and, and Julie's water broke. And I started to get nervous and panic. I ran into the bedroom and I'm putting the things that they told me at the Lamaze class to put into a bag. And then I'm bumping into the wall. I'm going frantic. I'm doing all this. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to get there. We got to get there. Come on. We got to move. And in the middle of that, I came out into the living room and I I, I don't know how to describe this. Julie was vacuuming. (laughs) I, I couldn't conceptually understand this. And she was in this trance. She's vacuuming. And, and I said, what are you doing? And she didn't even respond to me. And then she finished that. And then she started wiping down all the counters. And it was the most beho- bizarre behavior I've ever experienced. The last thing on my mind, we got to get there. We got to, what in the world was she doing? They didn't tell me about this. <laughs> Later, I, I learned there, it's a real thing. It's called nesting. 
And it brings out some really unique and irrational behaviors in pregnant women. And they experience it differently. They, they, they've reported throwing away perfectly good sheets and towels because they felt the strong need to have brand new clean sheets and towels for their home. They've reported doing things like taking apart the knobs on kitchen cupboards so they could disinfect the screws attached to the knobs. <laughs> Cleaning the entire house armed with a toothbrush. There's no end to the lengths they will go to prepare for the upcoming arrival. There's no end to the lengths they will go to prepare. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a room for you. Where did he go? From that upper room, where did he go? He went to the cross. He went to the cross as a way to prepare heaven for us. As a way to prepare your room in his father's house. The way, the preparation, the making of it, led him to and through the cross so that our home would be prepared. You know, the symbol of the cross has become so common, and we're going to talk about it this Lent because it's so important. But we can't go anywhere, probably can't go a day without seeing it multiple times. We think of it simply as a piece of jewelry. We think about it, we don't reflect upon it. Sometimes we even forget where this very image came from. This was a means of torture and execution. It was a way to kill people. It is understood to have been developed by the Persians and then used more prominently by Alexander the Great, but the Romans were the ones that really perfected it as a means of deterrence, as a means of putting down a rebellion. It was intended to be fatal in a way that would not only be incredibly painful, but also humiliating. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word for crucifixion. See, what Jesus is saying here is, I have work to do to get your room ready. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare it. This is the journey I'm going to take so that you and I can have a dwelling place. To miss that is to miss the context of this passage. This is what Jesus is saying. And to die at the cross was a truly horrific way to die. It was so bad that, 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 no, that a Roman citizen, regardless of what he or she may have done, it was forbidden. It was promised that they would never be killed this way. It was this act of state-sponsored terror. Crosses were set up along public roads so that they would have effect, so that everyone would have to pass by and see it. Jesus says, this is the preparation. This is what I need to do. This is what I'm about. Now, how this death of Christ is a ransom for sin, the New Testament doesn't say exactly. Um, it, in the work of Christ is described in various ways. A payment of a debt the satisfaction of a legal penalty, the transfer of guilt to a sacrificial lamb, 
the, as the exodus is from the bondage of sin, that Jesus died for our sins has always and everywhere belonged to the essence of the Christian faith. Why this had to be and what the precise connection is between the cross and forgiveness. The New Testament doesn't spell out exactly in so many words, probably because our minds couldn't understand it because it's so big and so glorious and so wonderful. But the truth of what he was doing and what we can say with complete confidence and with thanksgiving is Christ died for our sins. Christ died to prepare a place for us. How does he prepare a room for us? By going through hell so that you and I would not have to. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. The preparation of the room, the building of the room was becoming sin so that we could receive the righteousness of God. That's a big theological way of saying something. Let me try and unpack that a little bit. A thousand years before, the prophet Isaiah said this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment, garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Apparently, there is a dress code in heaven. Right? It's a pretty nice place. You can't just walk in there. It's a really nice place. You and I need to be adorned with the right clothing, the robe of righteousness, looking like the finest bridegroom, decked out with a garland, jewels. You can't just walk in. You know, in the early church, when they did a baptism, it's a little different than what we did here this morning. They practiced baptism by complete immersion. A person got dunked under the water, probably in a river or in a lake, and then brought back up. It was a pretty dramatic thing. And when the early church baptized converts, the individual took off their old clothes and walked into the river or lake as if it were a tomb, as if they were dying. And the priest who was waiting for them would say these very words. They would say, as you were walking down, buried with Christ in his baptism. And then the person would go under the water, and then the priest pulled them out of the water. He would say, and risen to walk in newness of life. And as the new believer emerged out of the water, out of the tomb, the church would gather around them, and they would put on brand new clothing that had never been worn before. Beautiful clothing they would put on them as a symbol of putting on Christ. What does this mean? Again, this means that there is a dress code in heaven. You and I cannot just walk in. We're going to need to be, if we're going to enter into our room, into our dwelling place, into heaven, we can't go with the, with the torn jeans. We cannot go with a t-shirt. Even those of you dressed so nice this morning, as nice as you could possibly, you cannot dress nice enough to get in. 
We can't. It's impossible. We can't stroll in. But what we can do is stand before God and have Jesus say, and hear Jesus say, here, wear my robe. Here's my jewel. I want you to wear this. Now you're presentable. Now you're ready. Let's go to your room that has been prepared. You see what's happening here. At the cross, Jesus is taking all of that and preparing new clothing for us. A new room. It's all about him giving to us. Remember the context here. Peter is about to deny him. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, now, let me tell you about the house I'm going to make for you. The dwelling places. Where I'm going. What I'm going to prepare. Jesus could have easily said, Peter, you ain't going to get in. I know what you're about to do. He could have spent this chapter saying, you better get busy, all of you. Mountain View Presbyterians, you better work hard, be moral, be good enough. You better clean up. Your clothes better be just right. Because not every... That's not what he does. He says, for those who are in Christ, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You can wear my righteousness. He'll put it on to us. But it's costly. It doesn't cost you or I anything. But it cost him everything. This is gift. We can't read over these verses quickly. When Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare, he's talking about the sacrificial, excruciating way of the cross. And it was a way of love and forgiveness. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us better than any place we could have ever and will ever experience in this life. And people who believe in this promise act differently from others. They make choices more easily. They're less cautious with life. They laugh at themselves. They're a lot more likely to give themselves to others. They take their own sin very seriously, but they're quick to forgive the sins of others. They love the church because, and we, because it is the bride of Christ. Even though it's flawed, they know this. Someday, those in Christ will enter into a new dwelling place with new clothing. But the real joy will not be the room. It will not be the clothing. The real joy is that we will get to be with him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how you prepare for us and for our salvation. And during this season, Father, we want to be startled anew and lost in wonder at how good your love is for us and for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.